If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. The rise of Black British theatre over the past two centuries is a story of innovation, creativity and triumph against the odds. It's also a story that's been largely ignored by mainstream histories. In his new book, Deep Other Roots, Trailblazers Who Changed Black British Theatre, Stephen Bourne attempts to set the record straight. He chronicles trailblazing black actors, playwrights and dramatists from Ira Aldridge to Alfred Fagan. On today's podcast, he introduced Spencer Mizzen to some of these theatrical pioneers. Stephen, your new book is called Deeper the Roots, Trailblazers Who Changed Black British Theatre. Now, the book was out at the end of last year, but this is a topic you've been interested in for decades, isn't it? So I wonder if I could start by asking you to explain why the history of black British theatre has struck such a chord with you. It's an aspect of black British history that that has just caught my imagination many, many years ago because I realised early on um, that as with the two world wars, which I've also written about, the black presence tended to be excluded or marginalised. So when when I was growing up and, and, and starting to do research into black British history, this would have been in the 1980s, I was reading, I was always interested in film and theatre, television and radio, but I was very conscious of the absence of many great black actors um, and plays and musicals that were excluded from the mainstream books. So the the, the custodians of, of, of British history, uh, <laughs> the historians, bless them, I felt were not doing justice to this subject, but it took a long time for Deep Other Roots to get, to get a publisher. You say it took a long time. Are you saying that you you had problems getting it published, persuading somebody to publish it? Yes, I did. Um, I pretty much had done all the research 
through the partly through the theatre museum that that helped to kind of formalize the research 20 years ago i received a small grant from the society for theatre research and with that small grant uh i got a little bit of match funding from the theatre museum which was based then at covent garden and just simply to do a trawl through their archives and listing anything that they had, any files that they had on black actors, black plays, black dramatists. It was a wonderful project. It was part-time. And I and then with that research, I then started to approach publishers to do a book on the early formative years of black British theatre from 1825, Ira Aldridge, up to 1975, which was the kind of beginnings of the black theatre movement, the contemporary black theatre movement. Every single publisher turned it down. 11 publishers turned it down. And in 2011, I think it was, I just put the proposal away and virtually forgot about it. And then with the Black Lives Matter movement in 2020, my editor at the History Press, I've been writing black British history books for them for about 10 years, and they said, um, we're really keen to have you back to do another book. Have you got any ideas? And I suddenly remembered this Deep Other Roots proposal that I'd become very despondent over because there'd been so many rejections, and I told him about it, and he said, send it in. I sent it in, and within weeks he commissioned it. The History Press commissioned it. So that's how the book came about. So it might have been published 10 years on from when I originally wanted to get it published. But just to finish on that, when I went into my fi- my filing cabinets and started digging out all the research and revisiting it, I found the list I'd made of all the publishers, the 11 publishers. I gave up after 11 and not interested. And in red letters, I'd written next to their name, not interested, not interested, not interested, um, too niche, not interested, too niche. It was the same kind of um, reaction I got from every publisher, and it it, it was heartbreaking. And, I, and it just reminded me of how hard that was. You write in the book that Deep Part of the Roots is a, is a personal history, not an academic one. What do you mean by that? <laughs> well, when my editor at the History Press agreed to go ahead with it, I had this sort of brainstorm one night and I decided I ain't going to write it objectively. I've been writing objectively all my life. This is the way I was told to write when I I was in the 1980s. You have to be objective. You have to be objective. You can't put yourself... In. And I thought, no, when I started thinking about Deep Are the Roots, and I wish I'd done this with my previous, some of my previous black British history books, uh, I thought, no, I, I want to put myself in the story. It's this academic way of doing things that I just totally threw out the window. And I said to my publisher, my editor, can I do this? And he said, well, yeah, why not? And he said, what, what were you thinking of? I said, well, for example, in the Paul Robeson chapter, there has to be a very big chapter about Paul Robeson, probably the most famous black actor of the of the last century. And 
in film, in theatre, incredible. And he did a lot of theatre work in Britain, including his celebrated Othello at Stratford in, in 1959. I said, I never met him, but I did meet his son. I said, I did work on two exhibitions about his life, one in 1985 at the Royal Festival Hall and another one for the Theatre Museum in 2001. And I have a lot of personal memories of meeting actors and people that knew him personally. And I've got my own personal story to tell of how I got involved in all of that. Perfect. He said, go ahead with it. So I, that's how I approach this particular history. And it was great fun to do. Now, as you just mentioned there, you've very much put yourself in, in this story. And that sort of takes me on to a question I was going to ask you concerning when you um, went to the cinema with a, a friend back in 1983 to watch Laurence Olivier play Othello in a, a film adaptation of Shakespeare's celebrated tragedy. Now, you describe Olivier's performance as a bizarre racist caricature. What impact did watching the film all those years ago have on you at the time? Well, as I explained in the book, I went one afternoon to a matinee of this film and my friend Sonia was black and we just fell about laughing because we just found it to be this awful racist caricature. It wasn't this great actor that we knew. We hadn't seen him on stage uh, but we had we were familiar with his films, obviously like Wuthering Heights and Rebecca and some of his Shakespeare films like Richard III and Henry V, and it, it, it was just a shock because the BBC had only just got axed the black and white minstrels in 1978. So this is only five years on from the, the ending of the black and white minstrel show on BBC television. And to suddenly see on a big screen, a big cinema screen, this horrendous racist caricature, we were laughing out of embarrassment, really. But we were also laughing because it, it was funny. It was funny in a horrible way. And we got told off, We, you know, lots of, like, senior citizens. It was a senior citizens matinee, and they weren't very happy about us <laughs> laughing. And in the end, it got so bad that the usher, I remember she sort of crept along and, and, and whispered to us, you know, can you calm down? You know, you're sort of upsetting people. And we just we just couldn't bear it. And then when... And, but really, what I say in the book is that Olivier never wanted to play Othello. He's on record, I think, in the 1950s, saying, I'll never play that part. I don't think the blacking up thing bothered him because, you know, lots of great British actors were blacking up. But he tackled all the great Shakespearean roles, King Lear, Falstaff, Romeo, Tybalt, the lot. And I think it was jealousy that compelled him to play Othello. Now, if he, at the National Theatre in 1964, this is a film record of that performance, and the jealousy came from Paul Robeson um, returning uh, to this country in 1958 after he had been exiled. Um, well, the American government had taken away his passport and travelling permission, and he came back a hero, came back. Th but, but also... Paul Robeson was loved by the working classes as well as the middle classes. Olivier wasn't loved by the working classes. Olivier didn't have that kind of audience. 
And so Olivier was an elitist actor, a great actor. I'm not taking anything away from him. And I, because Robeson's performance of, of, of Othello at Stratford in 1959 was so celebrated and sold out all the rest of it, Olivier at the, at the, at the beginning was in Hollywood filming Spartacus and he came back halfway through to this season of great Shakespeare plays to do Coriolanus and he was horrified. And I think, it, it, to be honest, uh, my personal view is that he was jealous. And and it, it's actually Paul Robeson's son, Paul Robeson Jr., that that said he was a racist. And, I, and I've quoted that in the book. And I think it is time to revisit that and think about that and, and what that performance um, is really about. Now, you mentioned earlier um, Ira Aldridge. Um, he's obviously a, a, a very significant figure in this story. And as you know in the book, he, he was described as, as the, the first person to show that black actors could scale the theatrical heights. I mean, what makes him such an important character in the, in the development of, of black theatre in Britain? Well, Ira Aldridge was the first to really break through on a grand scale. And he he didn't just play Othello in England. He played King Lear. I mean, he played a whole, and not just Shakespearean roles, but lots of other roles as well. He was very diverse. And considering this is the Victorian era, and he was the most, one of the most celebrated Shakespearean actors of the Victorian era, it says a lot. And he he wasn't without... Um, his detractors. I mean, the the pro-slavery people at the beginning of his career in this country um, were obviously against him. But Ira Aldridge offered a kind of representation of a black man in Victorian Britain that that w- was unprecedented almost. And he would s- send money that he was earning to the anti-slavery organisations, particularly in America, because this is long before, 40 years before slavery was abolished in America. It was abolished in this country not long after Ira arrived. So Ira was one of those first African-American expatriates that made Britain his home, his base, but he toured Europe. He he was very popular in, in Russia, in Poland. He actually died on tour in Poland in 1867. Had an amazing career, but was kind of almost forgotten by the next century. Perhaps not as forgotten as some of the other black actors that I've mentioned from the Victorian era. Uh, but, he, but he was a real trailblazer. I mean, he, he was was the one that that, that um, achieved so much. And, and I've tried to cover as much of that as I can in the chapter, but it, it barely scratches the surface. And there's a, a, a bizarre quote from um, a newspaper in the book which in which they say, Aldridge shall be jammed to atoms by the relentless power of our critical battering ram. I mean, what kind of opposition did, did he face during his career? He faced opposition in London. The London critics hated him. Um, that, I think, is where that, that particular quote came from. But he was fine in the provinces. 
that's where he built his reputation. And in Ireland as well, he built his reputation there. He couldn't work in America. Um, America wasn't ready for a black actor to, 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 to play those great roles on stage. So, but, and he toured Europe, but he eventually won over the London critics and, and sort of in the midst of 19th century, he begins to, to become much more celebrated and certainly breaks through in, in, in London in a big way and plays Othello in, in London at, the, I think it's the Haymarket Theatre, uh, not not that long before he passed away. So he achieved uh, great things in spite of initial hostility. But, but it, it, you know, the critics were very conservative, very narrow-minded. Some of them probably supported slavery, it, it was just too much for them to, to cope with. <laughs> Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And that's the whole passion for me about doing black British history work, is that even now it's inspiring for people to know, particularly young, younger black people, that there, there is this, this history there. It's just not been highlighted as, as well as it should have been. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Now, you know that during the Victorian and going on to the Edwardian periods, that in some ways the main contact that white Britons had with people of African descent was either when they were playing sport, maybe boxing, or in entertainment. I mean, how, how do you think uh, black actors' success on the stage in these periods sort of impacted on white perceptions of people of African descent? It, the Edwardian period is interesting because although it wasn't easy for black actors who wanted to play dramatic roles on stage, in spite of Ira Aldridge's success in the previous century, that was much more difficult. But music halls, this is before the invention of radio and television uh, and sound cinema, music halls were the staple uh, form of entertainment for the masses. And we still haven't scratched the surface regarding black music hall entertainers, not just African-Americans that travelled here and worked in our music halls, but many British-born and some Caribbean-born and African-born artists were, were working. And it, it's fascinating when you go into to, to the to the newspaper archives and you, you're able to like type in a name and you realise how much work they were doing because there were probably thousands of music halls up and down the country and some rose to great success so uh, amy height i know i've written about her she she was an american but she came here in the 18 late 1800s and was not only in the music halls right up until she died in 1913 but she was in pantomimes she even made a breakthrough in 1900 in a, in a straight role, in a, in a dramatic play in the West End. She had a lot of success, but was completely erased from history. And I had to dig very deep 
to find more information about her. I even managed to find one photograph of her on an, on an old Victorian music sheet, which was in pristine condition. So it's been lovely to be able to, to excavate that musical world of the Edwardian period, and the First World War, because, of course, in the First World War, everyone needed entertainment, an escape from, from the war. And I could go on and give a list of all these artists, but I've mentioned some of them in the book, not all of them. But there, there, there is some extraordinary stories there. But they were popular. Not only were they popular with audiences, the point I wanted to make was that they were, they didn't just, some of them would do the kind of racial caricatures on stage. Others wouldn't. Others, like Amy Height, would dress up smart in glamorous clothes. Cassie Warmer was another one. Belle Davis was another one. They were very glamorous. From the photographs that we have of these women from the Edwardian into the First World War sort of period, they were glamorous long before the women of, of the latter years uh, that I write about, like Josephine Baker and Florence Mills and Elizabeth Welch. Uh, these, these women were the real trailblazers for black women's glamour. I'd like to talk about Alfred Fagan, if I could. I mean, you, you recently wrote uh, an article about him for BBC History magazine and in which you spelled out the, the transformative impacts he had on uh, Black British theatre in the 1970s and 80s. I mean, what, what, what makes him such a significant figure for you? Alfred came from Jamaica and did all, a kind of variety of jobs, including a stint in, in the British Army, before he began acting in the sort of late 1960s. He based himself in Bristol and very quickly uh, was picked up by playwrights like Mustafa Matura and, and given parts in, in Mustafa's plays. And Mustafa was really the the pioneer in in some respects of that 1970s period, I, I write about the early 70s, in providing work for black, particularly black Caribbean actors, um, in which they're playing roles that are closer to their reality and giving them an opportunity to speak their own Caribbean dialect or patois. And Alfred, uh, very early on in the 70s, was cast in one of Mustafa's plays and was just liberated. I mean, it, he he just found it astounding that it was possible to go on stage and speak this way instead of trying to speak the Queen's English. So it made Alfred realise that it was possible to write plays and cast black Caribbean actors in roles that reflected their kind of, if you like, post-war reality in this country, the Windrush generation, so on and so forth. And that carried on through the 70s and into the 80s. But he kind of strikes a tragic figure in some respects because of the way he died. And and Alfred was one of those trailblazing figures of, of contemporary black British theatre, but sadly uh, collapsed and died of a heart attack when he was in his late 30s. What happened was I, I I didn't know very much about him until I worked, did this research at the Theatre Museum 20 years ago and I found a box, a cardboard box, and it was his life in a cardboard box. And it broke my heart because when I took 
the contents out of the cardboard box. There were photographs of him, play scripts, uh, memorabilia to do with his theatre career. And I said to the theatre museum, where did this come from? Oh, his agent, Alfred Fagon's agent, gave it to us to, to preserve. But but who was he? And I started asking questions about him. So I learned early on about him as a pioneering black writer and actor. But he was a very talented and very gifted actor. So how important were these people's work in forging a sense of sort of self-confidence and identity in Britain's black community in the second half of the 20th century? Well, it, 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 it is important because it, even if some working-class black people on limited incomes in the 1950s weren't able to afford to go to the royal court or wherever black plays or plays by black dramatists were being performed, they were being performed, they would have heard about them. It would have been, I'm sure it would have been a sense of pride, a sense of uh, inspiration for people. But certainly in the 1950s, Barry Record from Jamaica and Errol John from Trinidad broke through as as black playwrights at the royal court. So there's a chapter about them as well in in the book. Um, they were they were indeed, but but by no means the first black dramatist to be. I mean, it was C. L. R. James in 1936 wrote a play for Paul Robeson that was staged in in London in 1936, and so and Una Marson before that. Una Marson from Jamaica had her play at What a Price. Uh, performed at the at the Scala Theatre, I think it was, in 1934. So what I'm trying to say is if you keep going back and back and back, you keep finding examples of, let's just say, pioneers, trailblazers, and if you do the research properly, it, 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 that's why the book's called Deep Are the Roots. It, it, the roots go very deep. And that's the whole passion for me about doing black British history work is that, even now, it's inspiring for people to know, particularly young, younger black people, that there, there is this this history there. It's just not been highlighted as, as well as it should have been. Of course, this isn't just a story about uh, the actors themselves, is it? What about the rise of black uh, theatre companies? I mean, how, how important a role have they played? The black theatre companies played a very important role, but again, they didn't just emerge in the early 70s some very important ones emerged in the late 60s and early 70s before the sort of movement if you if we call it that took off in a big way with with more funding in the 1980s but again if you go back through history you find that that as early as the 1940s a Guyanese actor called Robert Adams was trying to put together a, a small black theatre company called the Negro Theatre Company. They used the word Negro in those early days um, before the term black came into popular use. And there was another sort of attempt in in the late 40s and so on into, into the 1960s. But there were very isolated examples and they could not get the funding. They could not get the bases. I mean, a home for their theatre companies. That didn't happen until, I think, the 1970s. Longfield Hall in, in Brixton, uh, London Borough Lambeth, was one of the first to be given... Frank Cousins, a dark and light theatre company, uh, was based there. I think they were given funding to, to create this base. 
in in the early 70s and to put on plays for the local black community. So it took a long time for that to happen, but it certainly becomes more apparent in the 1980s, but I don't go into the 1980s. I think post-1975 is another book, is another much more complex sort of story. I just wanted to document the first 150 years, but it's important to know that in the book I do mention a black actress before Ira Aldridge. We don't know her name. It would have been in the late 1700s, 1790s, I think. And she played Juliet. And she played Polly in the Beggar's Opera. So you see, if there are, if she, there, there, there is written a written, written record, brief written record of her, which I quote in the book. So it just proves my point that, that uh, Ira Aldridge may not have been the only black actor, but there's probably lots in, in the Victorian era. And I've written about Paul Molyneux as well and mentioned um, Morgan Smith but from the Victorian era. But there may have been many others that we'll never know about. And if you could recommend one or two black productions that most people probably won't have heard of, I mean, are there any you particularly like like to mention? Well, I, for me, the breakthrough was really Moon on a Rainbow Shawl by Errol John from Trinidad. He'd written it as a BBC radio drama called Small Island Moon, which was broadcast in May, I think, 1958. And then he adapted it for the stage, but he'd already won the Observer Playwriting Prize in 1956 for this particular play. But the BBC Radio produced it first with an all-black cast, and then it was staged at the Royal Court later that year, 1958. And it's a beautiful play. It's been revived a few times. It was revived just a few years back at the National. A wonderful production. And I would certainly recommend anyone interested in black British theatre to to maybe not start with that, but certainly consider you can buy the the script, it's in published form, uh and, and read it. Um but I think in terms of thinking about black drama students in our drama schools, they need more information. They need more references and and it is my ambition if you like to raise the profile of this book with with our drama schools because what i'm hearing is that they're not really this is not really being addressed black parts black plays um opportunities to do the, the this kind of work in drama schools hopefully that is changing or maybe will change more but it's not changing enough. But in order to, to, to give people something to work with, you need histories. You need history books that cover different aspects of British history. And I just was trying to fill the gap um, in, in, in that respect. The book isn't definitive, but it certainly covers a lot of ground that I hope people will find interest in. That was Stephen Bourne. Deep at the Roots, Trailblazers Who Changed Black British Theatre is out now published by the History Press. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. <laughs>